welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello, everyone, and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and Focuswire's weekly podcast about innovators in travel and transportation. Today, we're joined by Varun Kona of Headout. Headout is a mobile-first India-based tours and activities platform, and since Varun and his co-founders launched the site in 2014, 7 million people from about 200 countries have used the platform. Uh, so welcome, Varun. Uh, thanks for joining us today. We like to start every uh, one of these podcasts the same way as I'm sure you're familiar with, which is to ask you how you got here. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, the story in terms of how we got started with Hitout is actually rather crazy and interesting. So I think I'll probably spend a little bit more time on this one uh, than what is usual. So back in 2014, uh, there were three of us. That was Serene, Vikram, and I. I knew Serene as a buddy from college for almost sort of 18, 17 years now, um, from school, in fact. And so we've known each other for a while. And Serene and I wanted to start head out. We had this idea that, you know, people would love to go out and do interesting things and they would want to do this at the last minute spontaneously because that's how we looked at the world. And doing this on mobile was the obvious sort of format through which this would make sense. So that was the initial idea that we had, the hypothesis. And we started working on the idea with Vikram, who was our third co-founder, who is our third co-founder, who works, uh, who is our CTO as well and works on everything sort of technology and engineering. Um, we started working on the idea in Bangalore, but I think five weeks in, we realized that India as a market was not big enough for what we were trying to do. And so we had this crazy idea that we should move to the US and start a company there and see what happens. The only issue was the fact that none of us had actually lived, worked, studied in the US at all. I hadn't even been to the States. Uh, I think Surin had gone there once and Vikram had probably gone there once for his, for his prior work. Uh, but we still made that call. We tried speaking to a few individuals to try and understand if that makes sense. We pretty much got an overwhelming no from almost everybody that we spoke to, uh, where they essentially mentioned that building a consumer internet company in a country that you're not aware of, that you haven't been to, where you're not from, is not an easy task. Uh, but we essentially, in our own naivety, decided to ignore all the advice that we got. And um, it was in June 2014 that we sort of got a one-way ticket from Bangalore to the U.S. Uh, with a regular tourist visa. Uh, there were three of us. We didn't have housing in New York. Uh, so essentially what we did was that Serene was living with his cousin in Midtown. I was living with my aunt in Queens. And Vikram was staying with his friend in downtown. And we used to sort of figure out a way to catch up every day. And figure out how do we start building head out, what's the initial value proposition, who should the suppliers be, and so on and so forth. So kind of that's where we got started. It was pretty insane. Um, we didn't know pretty much anybody as we entered the country, and we had to build things from scratch, both from a product standpoint, from a sales standpoint, and also from a network standpoint, which was uh, difficult and interesting. But we were able to make that happen. We got into 500 startups, uh, moved to California, did the accelerator and then on the back of what we were able to accomplish in those four or five months um, and the traction that we had, we were able to raise a couple of million dollars in our seed round, which was largely by US investors, like 97% of the money came from US investors and um, 
And then we decided that as we started expanding uh, head out, we realized that being in the US or UK or any XYZ geography was not relevant because we started expanding to newer countries and newer cities. Um, and so we essentially sort of ended up having this weird global model where the majority of the office is located in Bangalore because that's where our tech is based. Uh, and then we have our hubs in New York, in London, in Berlin, in Hong Kong, which acts as sort of the central regional offices for all the, uh, the work that goes on. Um, and so in some sense, I don't know if I should call ourselves an Indian company, an American company, because that's kind of where the parent company is located um, or whatnot. I think like most things in the world today, we are a fairly global company and, and it's hard to sort of put a finger on which country do we all uh, sort of does the company really come from, right? So yeah, that's that's in that's in nutshell sort of the the story of how we got started. It was uh, weird and unconventional, and I don't recommend it to most people. But I think the large takeaway for it for us was to do what we felt like doing, and and things sort of somehow fall in place if you if you follow your heart in that direction. Uh, Varun, welcome. It's Kevin here. Um, interesting hey, Kevin. point. You did have. A couple of years with another travel startup beforehand, which you co-founded. I think it's just useful context for how you kind of got into travel uh, to tell us briefly about uh, Trippy as well. Yeah. So before Trippy, I was in investment banking. I was at Goldman. And while I quite loved the job and I don't really hate Goldman the way that people usually like to, um, I actually found it to be a really incredible place to work at. Um, I just wanted to do something on my own. And I was significantly uh, less wise then than I am today. And so I used my only criteria was that I should do what I love doing and traveling and backpacking was sort of on the top of that list. And so the, in, the initial idea at 22 was that let's sort of figure out a way to get more people to travel um, the way that I would like to. And the approach that I had with Trippy, and I was a solo founder, it was just me, was to figure out sort of group buying dynamics around holiday packages from India, right? Uh, the idea was that could we bring together a group of people, let's say eight and more, and can we then get a discount on a packaged, you know, travel uh, itinerary by Thomas Cook or Cox and Kings or XYZ travel operators from India. So I ran with that idea for about two and a half years. Um, it was the most profitable company that I've run. Um, if I compare that with Headout, <laughs> we made money from day one, which was amazing. Uh, but it just did not scale because most of the operations were largely offline. The customer interactions were offline and scaling it was just a nightmare. So it became an extremely uh, intense, glorified travel agency with a snazzy front end uh, for yeah. lead generation. But that's kind of all it was. And that's not really what my heart was into. And uh, at that point in time, I got in touch with Serene again, who was in Paris uh, post our college, who, he was studying and working there. And so we got in touch again and the idea for Headout sort of came about from a bunch of conversations and we said that let's uh, quit what we were doing and, and start working on Headout. And so I think in about two weeks, uh, Surin quit his job from Paris, moved back to Bangalore. I started figuring out how to wind down Trippy and then uh, we got Vikram into the fray and then three of us started working on Headout. So just a couple of um, kind of follow-ups on that. I mean, is there anything you learned as an entrepreneur launching and running Trippy that you then either carried on into Headout or said, I'm never doing it that way again? 
And also you, you, you referenced very quickly there that winding down Trippy, what did you have to do in order to do that? Just for, you know, we have mostly entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast. So it may be interesting just to uh, kind of expand on those two things, if you could, Vera. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of what I learned not to do, I mean, that's a long list, but if I have to really pick the ones that matter, one was the fact that have a clear path to becoming a product that works on self-service, which to me was not obvious because Trippy ended up evolving into a service organization, which is not what my initial hypothesis was and what was not what was exciting for me. So I think just making sure that we don't get into a trap of building everything that the customer wants and just following their lead. Um, and that usually seems to be sort of what people propagate as the right answer. I think there's a lot of nuance to that observation. And, and so for me, the big lesson was uh, not to simply build all features and all requests that the customer has and, and sort of try and have a more big picture view of what you're trying to build. Um, yeah. And the second one, which I always talk about people uh, to entrepreneurs, founders who are looking at getting into travel, it looks sexy from the outside, but it's <laughs> an absolutely messy industry from the inside. And uh, all of the romantic uh, notion that we have of travel when we start travel company is is the furthest thing from truth when you sort of start getting into it. So I think those two were the biggest takeaways from me uh, from transitioning from sort of trippy into head out. In terms of winding down, it was actually fairly straightforward. Um, I didn't raise any external capital because we didn't need it. So it was just me and me. And I had to just ensure that our team got uh, good jobs elsewhere, which was not a really big problem statement because India was booming at that point in time and, and travel in itself was doing very well. So finding alternative opportunities for most of the team was, uh, was not hard. A couple of them, in fact, even started up and I was able to sort of help them out with that, which was amazing. Um, and the legalities of it was not very complicated from what I remember. It was, okay. I mean, there's a scheme in India, every three years you're allowed to wind down companies and there's a specific way in which you do it. Took me about 45 days of back and forth with lawyers, but it wasn't very difficult. Okay. Thank you. David? So yeah, Varuna, I remember the first time we met, I think it was at a, a kind of um, a vanilla pub outside of WTM uh, in London, uh, that, that one that everyone congregates in outside of. <laughs> and uh, I remember we had a chat uh, about your business model. Um, and I remember there was a hotel tonight aspect to it on a kind of distressed inventory. I think I remember you telling me about how kind of you could actually get pretty good margins and rates from any of these tours and activities providers because, you know, last minute, if there's a, a, you know, a, a space on a boat that's going to leave or a Segway tour or something like that, they're willing to give you, you know, quite a healthy uh, you know, markup there. Um, I'd, I'd love if you could delve a little bit more into kind of the e economics and the, you know, the nitty gritty back end of kind of how your business works and how it's kind of different from the other tours and activities providers by being mobile first and focus on that last minute use case. Yeah. So initially the hypothesis was that there is a tremendous amount of unsold inventory that lies at the heart of the equation when it comes to tours and activities, um, which is a huge problem statement for the kind of partners that we work with. On the other hand, most customers increasingly are looking at doing things spontaneously at the last minute, right? It's hard for us to believe that we would want to lock down the exact specifics of what, which activity or which experience we would want to do, just like we would book our flights or hotels, right? It doesn't happen at that same sort of time frame. It's something that we largely like to keep at the very end and try and figure out when we get in the destination. So a combination of these two trends for us was essentially uh, where we thought that at the intersection of these two things, we could figure out a mobile first marketplace that could connect this distress inventory with customers who are looking to do things right then and there. And 
that model was the mainstay of what we did as head out for the first, I would say, sort of two and a half, three years, so all the way from 2014 to, I would say, initially, um, even mid of 2018. The focus was connecting this unsold inventory with customers who are looking for it. We were able to do this pretty well in the sense that we were able to scale this from zero to um, a few million dollars of sales in a month. Our margins used to be about 14, 15% at the time. And we had scaled this in about seven cities around the world, most of them in the US and then some in Europe. And while the initial hypothesis was accurate, the understanding was clear. I think we found that a larger problem statement is around not just pricing, but around discovery and trust and reliability, right? Um, and essentially the reason for that is very simple. At the end of the day, experiences are a service and services by definition are not standard. And when something is not standard, it's very hard to sell it online because it's very hard to compare it. It's very hard to benchmark it. It's very hard to commoditize it in a way that can be easily packaged and, and sold. And so we, from 2018 onwards, have been on this interesting journey where we have retained our last minute and our mobile focus. Like that's always been the bread and butter of what we do. But we have significantly evolved into a marketplace that's also getting into the, the dirty sort of back end of supply and trying to ensure that we are creating standards and creating uh, sort of consistency of service and supply as much as possible. So for example, uh, today on Head Out before COVID happened, if you would want to go on a walking tour in Louvre, unlike existing aggregators on Head Out, you would essentially sort of see only one listing of a walking tour in for the Louvre. And on the back end, we might have four, five, six, seven different vendors who are providing that walking tour. but we have done all the legwork of getting them sanitized and, and attached to this one single SKU that we have created, uh, which in itself is a very different take on aggregation than what the current model that we saw with the likes of Get Your Guide and Kluke and TripAdvisor. Um, and our thesis was that on mobile, um, people are looking to do things at last minute. They want curation. They want a limited list of recommendations that make sense for them. And they don't really care about the brand because the brand of the experience provider because they don't know what that brand is and so it doesn't really matter. And so how can we ensure that we are able to bring together uh, curation, we are able to bring together uh, really good pricing and we are able to bring together the fact that availability is key uh, to ensure that if you're looking for something to do in the next 20 minutes, in the next two hours, then I should ensure that there is enough spots available for them to book, right? And so for us to be able to ensure all of these things uh, to take place, we figured that a managed model where we were doing a lot of the uh, heavy lifting at the back end and creating these queues and then getting multiple vendors to attach themselves to this queue was the best way to control that supply in a way that allows us to control availability or maximize availability uh, to control pricing and uh, to be able to ensure that we are able to control the queues that we have on head out. Don't have you know tens of listings for Louvre. Like how can we provide an experience where with four SKUs, you are able to, you know, figure out what are the different ways in which you can experience uh, that specific landmark. So that's how the model evolved. And that helped us sort of grow from like a few million dollars a month to a few tens of millions of dollars a month. That's kind of been the mainstay of uh, how our business grew. Um, what also happened very interestingly in that zone was the fact that as we started growing this managed model, our take rates grew from about 15% to 22% today. 
And on the function of this growing revenue and the growing take rate, we sort of in 2019 hit a sort of hit a switch where we were able to get profitable first on a contribution margin basis and then on an EBITDA basis sometime in Q3 last year. And so we've essentially sort of been on this interesting journey where we were spending a lot of, we started with a very limited focus on last minute, but that proved out to be true partially. Uh, the larger problem was that last minute problem statement is not just around pricing, but it's around standards and it's around discovery and duration. And so we expanded our interpretation of that problem statement and solved for the larger use case. And we've seen that to pay out really well all the way until March this year. An interesting one on that is that many startups who come into the industry, say this hotel or an airline, the standards, this is a question now about standards. So the standards that exist already have been in place, whether it's GDS standards or Open Travel Alliance standards in hotels and things like that. In tours and activities, it's just a very, very overused phrase, but it is a wild west when it comes to kind of standards around inventory and distribution and you know revenue, uh, revenue management systems and reservation systems. How did you approach that? I mean, you've, so, you've said a couple of times there that you created standards, but they are standards that only exist between you and your customers. Do you sense that it would be easier for you as a startup if there'd been wider sector um, sector implemented standards for you to work with? So I think the interesting thing, and that's a good question, Kevin. I think, I think the interesting thing here is that when you talk about tours and activities, unlike accommodation or airlines, this is not one industry, right? It's an amalgamation of a few industries put together, which makes standards even more difficult. I mean, if you look at Hedar, for example, we sell tickets to attractions, we sell tours, we sell activities. We also sell a lot of events, which is a really big category for Hedar, which is usually not the case for the likes of Get Your Guide and Kluke and etc. Um, and so in each one of these industries, what defines itself as a standard is extremely different. And so we have not tried to come up with a standard that is equal across all of these different skews and industries. Like we don't think that intuitively makes sense. And our job essentially has been that if you want to buy a ticket to an attraction, here are some set things that you would want to know. You would want to know if you need to print this. You would want to know if you can show this on your phone. You would want to know if this can be canceled all the way up to the time that you visit. You would want to know uh, what, are the di- what are the different time slots in which you can enter. So for each type of these different activities, whether it's an entrance to an attraction or a tour or an event, there are different things that people care about, right? And to expect the industry to rally together on each one of these specific points and create nomenclature that is widely understood both at the supply level and the demand level, I think is, is a bit of a pipe dream, uh, quite honestly. And so we look at solving this by ensuring that if a customer is coming on to head out, if they want to go on a tour of the Warner Brothers studios in London, or if they want to go to a tour outside the city of Paris, all the way to Giverny, the way that they consume that information and the factors that matter to them should be similar. And it's our job to figure out what those factors are. And it's our job to figure out supply that is able to solve for those variables to the best of our abilities, right? So instead of having, let's say, 20 listings of day trips from Paris to Giverny, we would have one or at max two listings. And we would ensure that all of the the components of those listings are same. So it's the same inclusions. uh, It's the same timing. It's the same price point. It's the same description. And it's our job then to figure out what are the suppliers at the back end who can give that same standard experience for that one day trip from Paris to Givenchy. 
right? Um, so I think that heavy lifting on the back end is to us difficult and intense from an operation standpoint, but necessary from a customer experience standpoint. And, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. Cool. Okay. So that, that seems to be a really similar insight actually to the one that Uber had. And um, obviously, you know, Mozio's in ground transportation and we take the aggregation uh, view, which is more of the get your guide, uh, Kluke view in your world. Yeah. Um, you know, I won't share Mozio's valuation, but I can tell you it's not $60 billion. So clearly one of these models was more successful than the other. Um, but, sure. you know, Mozio still exists. The aggregation model in transportation does have a place. And I'm, I'm curious, I'd love to get your viewpoints about your own industry too. Do you, you, you clearly optimize that curation was good for mobile and last minute bookings, it seems. And like, do you think that these other guys and, you know, at a risk of inviting you to either uh, boost up or trash your competitors here, like, do you think they have like, you know, potentially a better market, uh, you know, a better, um, sorry, product for the specific use case and market they're going after? So the way that I look at this, we believe that a managed model like ours and an aggregation model should coexist, right? Uh, to me, that makes a ton of sense because it solves different kinds of problem statements. Uh, in the case of aggregation, it solves a problem statement where you really have a wide variety of items that you can explore into um, and, and sort of go from a very high level and start digging deeper and get to something that you would like, right? And there's a certain cohort of customers for which that makes a tremendous amount of sense. And we see that and we appreciate that. Um, at the same time, we believe that for this cohort of customers, customers who are largely sort of in the 27 to 40 bracket, who are urban on their mobile devices, looking at doing things at the last minute, they need a solution which solves for their problem statements, right? And we believe that our solution fits better for that demographic. And so how do we expand from, from where we are today to a larger sort of you know, uh, equation where we are able to serve significantly varied amount of demographics like the way that a get you get a clue can that's a question that that time will answer i don't think anybody uh, can predict that today our our assumption is that even though the wall that we are building is smaller the hope is that the mortar that's connecting these different bricks together is stronger and so if i have an infinitely long time horizon can I see this becoming valuable enough to solve the problem statements that our users and our suppliers face? If the answer is true, if it's yes, then we're happy to do it. And, and we believe that it is. Uh, we don't believe that it's the only model that can be successful in this ecosystem, but we believe that the, the mortar that's connecting these bricks is a lot stronger and hopefully that will pay for itself uh, from a 5, 10, 15 year horizon. What's, what is interesting about the various models is that at least one of those uh, competitors, Get Your Guide, is going down the kind of the branded route, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, it's, it's an interesting strategy for, for many, many reasons. I mean, because, you, because of the, the way that Headout has been, has been set up, has that been something that you would consider once your brand is arguably bigger? So, Kevin, interestingly, Headout has been quote unquote running branded tours for like two and a half years now, right? Because on yeah. Head Out, unlike Get Your Guide, you don't get to know who the end operator is. So essentially yeah. you're booking a head experience. We don't tell you who the operator is. It doesn't even come to your confirmation um, inbox. It's just we decide for one SKU we might have seven different operators at the back end. We figure out 
from our own algo, which is the right one for this customer, and we make that connection happen. But we don't expose this, this information to the customers whatsoever because we don't believe that it is integral to their decision-making process, right? So in some sense, we've been running branded tours for a long, long time. Now, when it comes specifically to Get Your Guide model, I think the way to look at this essentially is to think about them as a sort of a white label on top of an existing product, right? Um, they have not changed anything fundamentally at a structural level. They're essentially just saying that I'm going to buy out these many slots from this vendor and I'm going to sort of plaster my brand on it. I'm going to white label this experience. And to do that, I will ask the vendor for certain uh, benefits on the lines of relaxed cancellation or lower price points or higher commission rates and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but it doesn't structurally sort of change anything. It's still one SKU provided by one vendor with a white label on top. So I still believe that there is value to what they're doing because a customer who has used Get Your Guide and trust the brand could now potentially trust uh, the Get Your Guide original product more than a regular listing on the website. That hypothesis could potentially be true, but we don't necessarily feel very excited about white labeling products. I mean, it's it's a tactical thing in my opinion. I don't think it's a, it's a huge strategic angle that changes the structure of the experiences or the supply stack in a way that makes any meaningful difference to the end customer or to the end supplier. That's yeah, I mean, I, personal view. Yeah. I, I kind of guess that's what you were going to say. It's an interesting illustration of just how um, kind of nascent in a way that tours and activities is, is that there are these different models and it depends on what kind of coach you put on it is the way it can be interpreted. So I'm glad you kind of phrased it in that way, David. Yeah, it's funny. We call them uh, at Mosey branded aggregators, and uh, it can be <laughs> um, it can be kind of infuriating at times. Sometimes I, I've spoken to uh, people who we're trying to pitch them on working with Mosey, and they're like, "We like to go direct," and then they're like, "Oh, who are you working with?" And they name a bunch of our competitors. I'm like, "We use all the same suppliers, dude. You're, you aren't going direct." <laughs> like, and and like, it's funny that basically what it sounds like what you're saying is that get your guide is basically kind of going down that branded aggregator pathway a little bit more. And ironically, something we've been talking about recently is is how do you make a fundamental change from the bottom up in, in, in ground transportation, which, you know, like how do you actually change the fundamental things? So everybody's not just using the same guys on the back end. So it's, it's interesting to see that you're, you're doing uh, a lot of that in, in your industry. I wanted to um, slightly shift the conversation though over to, uh, you know, something, a uh, culture shock. Um, so I, I think you, you kind of um, very quickly uh, went over of what must have been an incredibly interesting uh, transition moving to the U.S. to start a company without even knowing anything about the culture now. Um, I, I recognize, you know, uh, English speaking stuff is not like, you know, me trying to go start a company in China, but uh, it, I think there, there must be a lot that you had to go through, uh, you know, in order to make that work. So, you know, tell us some more stories from, from that time. Yeah, so, I mean, in hindsight, it was an extremely foolish decision, right? Like, I think if I sit back today and I try and trace back my steps to figure out the logic as to why that made sense to me, I actually can't think of one. So I think it was just one of those things that you do because you're young and you feel like you could do anything that you would want in the world because we have not, we have not yet been hardened by life experiences. And so in, in a weird way that worked out really well for us. Right? Um, so when we moved to the US, in some sense, it was a huge culture shock because I had actually never lived outside of India ever in my life and I had never been to the US. And so it was a new country, new people, pretty much nobody that I knew outside of the two founders that I came with and my aunt, uh, who I saw once a week because I used to pretty much be um, uh, at the co-working space that we used to work out of. So 
it was interesting because I was used to an extremely comfortable lifestyle in India. I used to live with my girlfriend back then. In India, we had all the amenities that you would want, a nice house, you know, house help, etc., etc. So it was just an extremely comfortable and relaxed lifestyle, which got appended in a pretty dramatic way when we moved there. Um, and after the first couple of months, when my aunt finally sort of pushed me out because she was like, okay, that's long enough now. We got an apartment um, uh, north of Columbia, uh, I think on, on 99th Street or something. And the apartment was just, it was, it was a bunch of Chinese graduates uh, who were studying in Columbia who had gone back home for summer. And, and we subleased it from them. And the apartment was just infested with cockroaches. And I have, I have like a huge cockroach phobia. Um, and I had to essentially sort of like live with that pretty much. I think that's called a phobia. I think that's just normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I literally had to sort of live with that uh, for two months. And it was just intense, right? Like, I mean, uh, and because I used to hate going back home because it was infested, I used to essentially sleep at the co-working space. There's a couch there, which actually has like a photo of me sleeping there, uh, posted next to the couch. And, 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 and the guys that keep talking about it for a long time, every time I go back to New York, I, I go back and say hi there. Um, and, and, and so it's just become one of those funny sort of stories where every morning they used to come back at eight o'clock and, and sort of catch me sleeping in that couch, on that couch. Um, so it was incredibly intense uh, from that perspective. But one interesting thing that I realized was that growing up in urban India was not very different than growing up in any urban center in the US. Or for that part, for that matter, I think growing up in any largely English speaking urban city in the world is the, the experience that you have is actually very, very similar. Like I, we watched the same movies, uh, you know, sort of looked after the same, we're, we're crazy about the same bands, uh, read similar kind of books and so on and so forth. So I think in, in, in a, in a pretty uh, surprising way, I actually was able to make some really good connections and make friends rather easily on the back of these similar cultural touch points of movies and books and authors and so on and so forth, which, um, when I think about it now, I realize that my experience as an individual is a lot closer to somebody, let's say, living in New York than somebody living in a tier three town in India, right? And I think that potentially could be true even for this New Yorker. I think their experience of somebody, uh, their experience of, of living in New York versus somebody living in a rural township in, in uh, Utah, I think, I think might be very, very distinct and, and disconnected. And they might, be relate, they might be able to relate much more uh, to a guy like me. So I think, I think it was an interesting revelation that in a lot of ways, at least in urban centers around the world, life is a lot similar than we anticipated. Now you went from you know, living in, uh, or a kind of getting used to living in somewhere like New York, from a business perspective, you were then thrust into the world of 500 startups. And yeah. that kind of world. Talk to us a little bit about that, and what was your, what was your experience of that? Yeah, so it was an incredibly uh, helpful experience for us personally as head out because we didn't really have the connections or the network in the U.S., and we were able to build that off of the 500 family, which worked out as a great sort of short circuit to be able to get to the funding that we needed to get to, right? Um, and it also gave us a very real deadline because the accelerator it sort of was around for the batch was like for four months. And so whatever it is that we had to do had to be done in those four months. And so when we joined the accelerator, we were the smallest company in terms of revenue. Um, 
there were a few that didn't make any revenue, uh, but from the ones that were generating any revenue, we were the smallest one. And by the end of the batch, we sort of ended up becoming the largest one. And so that four months was just an incredible time for us because it allowed us focus to be able to really sort of put our heads down and just solve for the problem statement that we're trying to solve. We got enough money to be able to get a house, which was nice. Uh, though it didn't really matter because I was sleeping out of the 500 office in Mountain View, which doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but they had a lovely um, <laughs> office uh, in, in Mountain View um, on the seventh floor from which you could pretty much see the whole peninsula. And um, I, I pretty much spent almost all of those four months there. Um, I still remember it was fun. It was most of our customers were from New York and we used to have phone support, which was handled by me. And so I used to wake up at four o'clock in the morning because it was seven in New York and people used to start sort of, you know, pinging those calls and asking questions. So we used to have questions from suppliers. And so I used to sort of do this weird four o'clock to like 12 a.m. shift um, and then sort of try and sleep for four hours and then get back on the calls again. Um, so, I mean, 500 for us was like a huge boon. Like I, I can't, I don't recommend an accelerator for every company, but for a company in our context, which doesn't have that network and finds itself in an alien environment, I think uh, an, an accelerator like 500 actually did the job of what an accelerator should do, which is like really sort of propel our journey in a way that it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And and lastly, from me for a bit, and maybe if I've got this wrong, you were on a show called The Pitch TV show. Tell us about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of the more questionable things I've done in my life. Um, so did you, say, called, did you say? Did you say questionable? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is this so, the reality show, the Bloomberg one or something? Like it's yes, just that's go, the one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, it was a reality show about entrepreneurs pitching ideas and doing a bunch of tasks which are not connected with their startups at all, whatsoever, uh, to prove their entrepreneurial metal. Um, I still don't quite agree with the with the evaluation procedure per se, but it was interesting. I mean, it was across. I think I spent about, almost about two months doing the whole thing. Um, it's what you would expect from a reality show. What you see on TV is not exactly what sort of went down. They, it, the bits and pieces that have stitched together are, are incredibly interesting and made for good viewing, uh, but, but isn't quite reality in the way that you would expect it to be. Uh, but it was an interesting challenge for me because I, before that show, I was a sort of a reclusive guy. I didn't really talk much. So coming in front of camera and doing all of that for me was like, the first time in my life that I did public speaking and, and put myself out there and under the spotlight, which was a huge life changing um, story for me personally, but it didn't really do anything for what we were trying to do with head out. <laughs> but you spent two months, you spent, uh, you spent two months on it, right? So you must've considered it to be something that was good for both, as you said, your own kind of personal development, but for development of the company in terms of exposure. I mean, the exposure, I think, I think most things on these lines, you overestimate the exposure that you get when you're in it and then sort of when you're done with it and then you look back, uh, you're not quite so sure. So I wouldn't say, I mean, after the first four weeks, I didn't have an option like contractual, like we had to finish the show. So that was that. But I think it was just like, personally, it was really helpful. Like for me as an individual, for the company, I mean, I just don't think reality shows are are a reasonable path to building companies like i, I don't think there's any <laughs> i don't think there's any connection between the two <laughs> yeah. 
It's funny that there was like a spate of those shows, you know, I think it was like six or seven years ago. I remember Bravo had one as well. Yep. If I'm not mistaken, had someone sleeping under the f- a desk of the 500 startups, Dave McClure's or whatever. And uh, I yep. remember everyone uh, rolled their eyes because one of the tech people was actually a blogger or something like that. And it was just <laughs> kind of, uh, it was just like, and they were trying to hold this uh, girl up who was living out of the Marriott Four Seasons as a, as a, as a tech entrepreneur. They were just kind of rolling their eyes. But anyways, um, yeah. you know, we don't have uh, much time left, but I wanted to kind of uh, transition to something that I think is a little bit topical, which is remote. Yeah. Work. Um, and you, you, you have this kind of uh, joint, uh, you know, um, you have an you know, office in India and you uh, sleep in various offices in America, apparently. Uh, and so you are doing this kind of uh, interesting remote work, uh, you know, uh, thing, thing that you've been doing for a while. And, and Mosey is the same. We've, we've for nine years have actually been fully remote. Most of our people are actually in Argentina and Europe. Um, and you're seeing this kind of uh, all these VCs rush to kind of uh, pretend like they're thought leaders and, and uh, at the forefront of remote work. But, uh, you know, I'm curious how you came to the decision of, of, of structuring your team like that and how did you manage a culture across at least two different locations? Yeah, so at the very beginning, what was obvious to us is that we wanted some local footprint in each of the regions that we handled because sales and distribution was largely local and that was just critical and important. But at the same time, a lot of the functions could be centralized in a way that is extremely cost effective, right? And so we made the decision that if it could be central, it could be anywhere in the world. And if it could be anywhere in the world, then why not do this in Bangalore, which is where we are from? We know the industry, we know the city, we know uh, what's the best way to hire people there. And it's easier to attract talent uh, than it would be in a place like New York, where we are relatively more unknown uh, entities, right? So I think we just made that call to set up our entire product and support team in India and sort of go with a hub model for all the regional offices. So we had one in New York and then we opened our second one in London and then Berlin happened and then Dubai happened and then Hong Kong and so on and so forth. So we did this largely out of necessity. Like it just made sense to us that uh, having a central office in a place like SF or New York would not make sense for us as a company because we are still largely global. I mean, 35% of our customers come from the US, but then the remaining 75, the remaining 65% are split between 98 countries at any point in time. Um, and so it's an incredibly diverse set of people and it doesn't matter to us uh, where we are. It doesn't matter to our customers where we are, as long as the central operations can be delivered effectively. Right. So Bangalore for, from that perspective, was a very logical decision and, and the local hubs was also a necessary uh, evil, so to speak, because we had to have those offices to have connections with our suppliers and our distributors on the ground. Now, in terms of managing our culture between these different offices, I would, I would be incorrect in saying that we have figured this out completely. I think it's, it's a constant sort of evolution and, and we still keep getting better at it um, every single day. But there were a few things that we did. One, the whole company lives on Slack and that's been one of the most uh, incredible investments that we've made from day one. Uh, Two, we have these structured sort of events that we put together multiple times a week where the team comes together for a wide variety of activities. We have uh, a team lunch that happens together where all of us are eating from different offices and everybody sees everybody eating at the same time and there's a whole bunch of conversation around it and so on and so forth, which happens religiously every single week, which is amazing. Um, We have a virtual tour where one person from one of our offices would sort of, you know, 
give us a tour of the city that they live in, of some specific place within that city, and and show us what that city has to offer, uh, what those what their stories are, what what the people, uh, what what their cultural nuances are, and so on and so forth. And and this again happens on a on a on a weekly basis. Um, and then we have our socials where we all get a drink every Friday evening together. We have our AMAs. We have uh, all our video calls are supposed to be mandated with a with a video on option so that people get to sort of uh, see each other more often than not. So we've just done a bunch of these structured initiatives to ensure that the connection between people is is um, is as real and as human as it can possibly be. And then on the top of that, we've done our annual retreats. Like so twice a year, we bring everybody together. Last year we did Sri Lanka. This year we did Goa. That was just before COVID. Like we literally uh, did that I think in February second or third week when the shit was just starting to get serious and uh, a few of us actually fell sick and in hindsight we believe it might have been COVID but we never really got tested um, and and that was that but we do these annual retreats every six to nine months where we get everybody together from all our offices which is incredibly um, a good amount of fun. Okay, well, we're sadly up against time, but I'm glad that we've covered um, something as important as culture and remote working, given that so many of us are living and breathing it um, and quite likely to do for some time. So thank you for covering so many different, (laughs) indeed. So thank you so much for covering so many parts of uh, your history and um, for being our guest on How I Got Here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I had so much fun, guys. Okay, so uh, thank you very much again. So that's uh, another episode of How I Got Here uh, in the Can, as it were. So you've been listening to uh, Mozio and Focuswire's uh, weekly podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.